0: Welcome back once again to Evidence-Based Radio, still recording from quarantine, um, but as always, you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederada.com. So tonight I do want to talk briefly about COVID-19 before circling back as I uh, suggested last week to that final story. In the U.S., we continue to see a decrease in cases of COVID at the moment, but we have also begun to see a large rise in some places in the number of cases of the more transmissible Omicron BA.2 strain. And around a thousand people are still dying each day of COVID-19 in the U.S. So even though it feels like we've really come out of it, COVID-19 is still very much here. And in fact, I had a personal brush with the fact that it is still very much here because my mom tested positive at the beginning of this week. Luckily, she had gotten her booster and had just a few days of feeling really bad. But of course, when I asked her if she'd been wearing a mask, she said, Oh, no one wears masks anymore. And that just made me feel very frustrated, especially since, you know, my mom is not necessarily a young woman, young in heart, certainly. Um, <laughs> She is still someone who really likes to go out and do things, Uh, I definitely get my extra version from her. Um, And so I don't think she should be blamed for that. Obviously, the CDC has specifically relaxed its guidelines for mask wearing. And so this is why a new variant with even more infectivity than the already highly infective original version of Omicron is such a worry so it's supposed to be i believe 30 to 40 percent more infective than um earlier strains and so if you have someone who has this strain the chances are that they can distribute it to around 10 people and so that's a big number And that's how you get huge spikes relatively quickly. And so I stand by my analogy that uh, having relaxed all of the um, restrictions at this point is very much like stopping your antibiotics when you feel better rather than finishing the full dose. And so I definitely am still at a point where I am going to continue to wear a mask and do social distancing. So we're seeing large surges in Asia, which are now moving into Europe. And we've seen in previous spikes that once it moves into Europe and especially into the UK, that usually means that the US is going to have a spike next. But if you're vaccinated, the news continues to actually be relatively good. Um, Again, relatively. New data from the CDC notes in Mortality and Morbidity Weekly that, quote, receiving two or three doses of an mRNA COVID-19 vaccine was associated with a 90% reduction in risk for COVID-19 associated IMV or death. Protection of three mRNA vaccine doses during the period of Omicron predominance was 94%. So IMV is shorthand for basically being um, ending up on a ventilator. And so um, you might end up in the hospital for a day or so, but you're much less likely uh, to end up either on a ventilator or dying And those are huge numbers, honestly, 90 to 94%. So that is really great. And, you know, it's certainly not a reason to completely relax your guard because it's still better to never have gotten COVID uh, if you're fully vaccinated than to get it. But so we do know, though, of course, that There is that other aspect, which is that absolute protection from infection continues to wane, but luckily this ability to protect us from the worst of the disease seems to be really holding steady, especially after um, the first booster. So again, my advice remains the same. Continue to wear a mask if you have any chance of having complications from becoming infected, or regularly around someone who could have an adverse reaction. So if you care for someone who is elderly, especially if they have not had COVID yet, um, or someone very young who hasn't been able to be vaccinated, or, um, you know, people like that, someone who's immunocompromised, I personally would still keep wearing a mask because it is still, as I noted, way better not to get COVID in the first place than to have to deal with having had COVID. Even if it is mild, it can still potentially have long-term effects. And we've talked about some of those. We've talked about people who had um, heart disease problems, even from mild versions of COVID. So it's definitely just best to not get it. Okay. Now, before we circle back, I do want to give an update on another story, um, the Starlink story. And so um, Starlink has been actually proving to be a vital tool in the fight for Ukraine. Apparently, uh, the satellites are being used by the Army's aerial reconnaissance unit um, for surveillance and attack drones targeting Russian tanks and positions. And the Russians don't seem to have yet been successful in jamming the signals. So credit goes to Starlink and Elon Musk. Um, Again, I still don't like the man. I still think he's not a good businessman. Um, Not that I think many people are good businessmen. Um, But I'm willing to admit that no person is wholly bad or wholly good. Um, I think that it's a really good use of technology, even if I don't like the Starlink project either, because, um, obviously it is giving astronomers headaches, but I think that in this case where it is helping people defend themselves against an aggressor, then, um, yeah, I'm going to give him, I'm going to give him this, I'm going to give him props for helping with this. And so apparently, uh, they're saying that they had kind of been already in the works of trying to um, spread Starlink to the Ukraine. Sorry, to Ukraine. Um, And that once they got that tweet, they basically considered that the go ahead and considered it the. um, They were saying that the tweet was basically a contract saying that. Starlink could start to operate in the Ukraine. And so that's what they did. Um, So, yeah. And I know that uh, some people are upset about that and that, you know, it was supposed to be used for non-military reasons. But frankly, uh, in this case, I think that defending your country against an aggressor is a pretty decent reason Um, obviously I am very much against most war, um, well, all war in, in reality, but, um, in the abstract all war, but in reality, sometimes there are conflicts that do happen and are going to happen. Um, obviously that's a complicated thing that I do not want to get into tonight. Um, but I would just say that I definitely think that, Ukraine has every right to defend itself in any way that it can, considering the overwhelming force that is being uh, flung against it by Russia. Okay, so let's move away from that tangled web um, and circle back, as I said. Uh, So, last week I did run out of time and I wanted to give this story a bit more because I think it's important both to talk about the limitations of AI, but also our obsession with trying to apply AI and machine learning to things that are traditionally the purview of humans. So again, last week we talked about how MIT's technolo- MIT Technology Review's podcast, In Machines We Trust, which I think is uh, very interesting and I should probably try and listen to some of it uh, and see what it's like, because that does sound uh, like something I'd be interested in. Uh, It tested two AI-powered job interview softwares and found that they do not live up to the hype from their advertisement. Two systems were tested, Curious Thing and My Interview. My Interview tests candidates on traits associated with the Big Five personality test, which is widely used in psychiatry, but isn't so useful in the world of corporate application as far as uh, the data so far suggests. Curious Things also looks at other measurements such as humility and resistance. Both then offer assessments to hiring managers. To test the system, Technology Review created fake job postings for an office administrator slash researcher on both apps and then constructed fake candidates they believed would fit the criteria they laid out in those job postings. The podcast's site outlines the scenario. On my interview, we selected characteristics like attention to detail and ranked them by level of importance. We also selected interview questions, which are displayed on the screen while the candidate records video responses. On Curious Thing, we selected characteristics like humility, adaptability, and resilience. One of us, Hilke Shellman, then applied for the position and completed interviews for the role on both my interview and Curious Thing. The first time on Curious Thing, Shellman completed one video interview and received an 8.5 out of nine for English competency. She then retook the test and instead read a German-language Wikipedia page on psychometrics. She did this twice, and each time she received a 6 out of 9. My interview gave her German-language video a 73% match for the job. It also transcribed the video interview, and the results are... Well, let's just read a little bit of it. So, humidity is desk a beat-up. Sociology, does it iron? Mind material nematode adapt. Secure location, mesons, the first half gamma, their fortunes in for IMD, and fact long on for pass along to Eurasia, and Z, this particular location, mesons. Yeah. (laughs) Well done, uh, faux artificial intelligence um and so yeah just think of ai that purports to be able to use facial ins- expressions as well um yeah that is definitely not not going so well now even text based box bots have been dinged with linkedin being forced to overhaul overhaul the algorithm they used to match job applicants with potential jobs. And Amazon abandoned its internally developed system because well, in both cases, they found for instance, that AI continued to be biased against women. So one of the things that we sometimes forget about is that even though these AIs have some measure of autonomy, they are still initially programmed by human beings And so I'm sure you've heard of some of the stories of basically people being um, or of AIs basically taking up the worst traits from humans and amplifying them. Um, There have been really outrageous stories of AIs that were trained to look at Facebook and came out as basically... Uh, the equivalent of neo-Nazis, <laughs> and all sorts of things like that. And so no matter what we want to think about how AIs can be unbiased, until we can discover a way for them to not have to be initially trained by humans, they're going to continue to have human uh, biases. So, yeah. My interview said it scored based on the intonation of the person's voice, which experts pretty much all across the board agree is a terrible metric for assessment, especially when it's been observed that AI often, again, have more trouble understanding women's voices. Um, so, this is, of course, the facial recognition uh, thing all over again, where every time someone has tried to develop a facial recognition software, it turns out that it's terrible at being able to recognize African American people. Um, and so, yeah, it's just every time you do this, it turns out that there's some sort of giant issue. In my favorite part of this entire story, Han Hanzu the co-founder and chief technology officer of Curious Things told the technology review that this was actually an exciting result because, and I quote, it is the very first time that our system is being tested in German, therefore an extremely valuable data point for us to research into and see if it unveils anything in our system. Whew, that is quite the spin. Um, yeah, that is that is who that is some next level um PR spin right there. It is really amazing. Uh so again, long story short, is this is not the uh terrifying sci-fi future. Um, I definitely don't think we need to fear the AI apocalypse anytime soon. Um, And so, yeah, I think that it's really fine for everyone to take a deep breath and uh, realize that technology continues to uh, get better and better, but also continues to have a lot of very basic and very um, telling issues with its um, ability to do things that humans traditionally have done. And um, I think this is definitely one of those places where I don't really understand why you wouldn't just have a human do it because you really, every time you train an AI, you just give them the same biases that people have. I think what's been proven to work is, for instance, to do um, blind readings of um, application things, things like that. So to strip the name and any kind of um, gender uh, markers from applications and to uh, do potentially uh, text interviews or um, email interviews where the person um, can not necessarily know what uh, sex or, and or race the person is. I think there's lots that can be done there to help um, decrease bias, but um, I'm not sure that AI is the way to do it. All right, and so uh, this is actually tangentially related to another thing that I would like to once again, briefly talk about. Um, and so this is the human desire to find solutions without a problem. (laughs) Um, And that is something that is always fascinating to me um, as someone who is not a, you know, I don't consider myself a technologist. Um, I'm very pro-science. I'm pro-technology. But I think that technology uh, should have a purpose. And um, I feel like that's a bit of a naive uh, statement these days. Um, but yeah. And so one of the places where I see this writ very large is in the realm of cryptocurrency and NFTs. Now, again, I am by no means a Luddite. Uh, I enjoy technology. I, you know, have an iPhone. I, um, you know, have a smart TV now. Um, and you know, it's lovely, but When you combine technology with unfettered capitalism, nothing good can come of it as far as I'm concerned. And so um, I just want to talk about this once and then hopefully we can ignore it again. But um, I feel like I really should talk about the blockchain um, because it's a thing at the moment. And so the blockchain is a technology that has sold a lot of people on its utility without actually truly having any utility, honestly. In my opinion, obviously, it is in essence a very sophisticated version of vaporware. The entire economy of NFTs, smart contracts, and cryptocurrency is basically a house of cards that relies on continually bringing new people in at the bottom, which is, of course... Like, well, a pyramid with a few wealthy people at the top and a lot of people who are hoping to get rich quick on the bottom. Now, again, I don't want to spend a lot of time moralizing on this. Everyone involved is at least somewhat culpable. Uh, given the huge amount of fraud and what are called rug pulls, where basically a project is started and then a bunch of people buy NFTs and then the people who sold those NFTs simply take all of that money and cash out, <laughs> leaving people with useless NFTs or even more useless NFTs, I should say, Um So many of those have already been perpetrated in this space that I find it increasingly hard to feel sympathy for those who are still trying to cash in. And of course, everyone should know that the game is up when people like or institutions like Goldman Sachs and the uh, sort of Silicon Valley vulture capitalists or venture capitalists uh, get involved And so at that point, you know that it is no longer the sort of libertarian Wild West dream that people had. It is now going to just become something that gets folded into the greater um, market system, which is deeply, deeply corrupt. But this is not the way to solve it. Um, So, yeah, if you still think that this is a good idea, I, I don't know what to say to you. Um, And I hope that you're also already aware of the vast amount of energy and processing power that is being devoted to this exercise in sheer, unadulterated, capitalistic orgies. I I actually heard a funny thing on a YouTube video earlier uh, yesterday that made me have some hope, though. Um, so apparently there were a ton of commercials at the Super Bowl for various kinds of cryptocurrency and NFT projects. Um, God, I haven't watched football in years, not because I'm, I'm against it. I, you know, I actually used to watch it when I was younger. It's just, I don't watch sports anymore. Um, anyways, that's a tangent. And so the person noted that, uh, one of the things that struck them was that, you know, There are no commercials for fiat currency because, well, fiat currency doesn't need to convince you that it's worth anything, which is, of course, not strictly true. (laughs) The whole fiat part of the fiat currency is about the fact that it has value because the country says it does. Um, And, of course, this is supposed to be something that the blockchain doesn't do, that you're supposed to have actual value based on something. Um, (laughs) like I said, I, I personally feel like the blockchain is a lot of vaporware, um, especially when you learn things like the fact that, uh, most of what is claimed to be hosted on the blockchain is not actually hosted on the blockchain because of the energy, um, issues and just the sheer amount of, um, Basically, uh, storage space you would need in order to do that. And so, yeah, it's, it's very, it's a very weird idea that I hope is going to, you know, I hope the bubble is going to pop soon. Um, I feel bad for the people who are going to lose money because of that, especially since some of them are ordinary people who just got caught up in the hype and were susceptible to con men's ideas about, you know, how they could get rich. Um, And of course, a lot of people are being misled by uh, social media uh, influencers who say, oh, this is the new hot thing. And um, yeah, there's actually been um some people who have done their very own rug pulls and so um amongst celebrities and yeah uh there's also a lot of legal issues um about unpaid or um about paid sponsorships not being disclosed so it really is a bit of wild west right now and um yeah i am really hoping that this bubble uh goes away soon and we can go back to something a little less um terrifyingly volatile <laughs> um again not that i am pro capitalism and pro regular stocks and monetary exchanges but this is even worse um which is saying something um and so i'm hoping that cryptocurrency will also, uh, as that cryptocurrency as well as COVID-19 will both eventually become a thing that is barely a blip in our collective consciousness and are basically we're looking at them in our rear view window. Um, and obviously, I also hope that these things become true sooner rather than later. Um, I'm really excited. I just, uh, got a message from a friend who I haven't talked to in like a year and a half because my ability to reach out to people during COVID just collapsed and I'm super excited to be able to, uh, meet up with them again. And I would like to do more of that. I would like to go back to my normal life, but I just don't feel like I can yet. Um, and so, yeah. Okay. Okay. This is not, despite my frequent detours, actually a show about economics. Um, I am not an economist. Uh, I'm also not a scientist, but I feel much more comfortable in the realm of science. Um, It's a lot less. uh, (laughs) I mean, that that's saying something when you feel a lot more confident in the realm of science uh, where lots of things are happening all the time, and lots of counterintuitive things happen um rather than in economics, which is technically billed as something that's very like straightforward for the most part and rational and I just i don't see it <laughs> um so yes, this is a science show, and uh so I did want to balance talking about the sort of downsides of a i with a story about a um, good way to uh, use a neural network program in order to actually model and uh, probe the way in which the human mind does actually work. So we will talk about that uh, when we get back from our regularly scheduled break. So please do stay tuned. You are listening to evidence-based, Radio. Outbreaks of whooping cough or pertussis are happening across the United States. This serious respiratory disease can be deadly for babies. By getting the whooping cough vaccine called Tdap during the third trimester of each pregnancy, women can pass antibodies to their babies to help protect them until they're old enough to receive their own vaccine. Learn more at cdc.gov pertussis slash pregnant. That's pertussis, P-E-R-T-U-S-S-I-S Table of Contents is a weekly music program that assembles an assortment of songs and sounds of many genres and which may entail literally taking a random collection of musical sources off the shelf and giving them a turn on the table or spin in a CD or tape player. Each week presenting shows which can at times be organized orderly and at other times perhaps be not as much so, yet never dull. Tune in Friday nights 10 p.m. till midnight on WXOJ LP Northampton 103.3 FM. There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Wash your hands. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you are sick. Cover your cough or sneeze. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. For more information, visit cdc.gov slash COVID-19. This message brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. Hey, this is Wendy, host of Valley Free Radio's subculture music program featuring new wave, post-punk, indie, and electronic music from the 70s to today. Join me every Friday night from 8-10pm to here on WXOJ or stream it live from your favorite listening device at valleyfreeradio.org The Forbes Library staff would like to remind you of the incredible resource that you have in your local public library. We have tens of thousands of books for you to check out, music CDs, movies, newspapers from around the region the state and the country we have a wide variety of magazines and free computer and internet access every day we also have our incredible reference services there to help you answer particularly vexing problems all of this is free locally available at 20 west street in northampton so come by and check us out in person or at www.forbeslibrary.org or call 587-1011 for more information In our polarizing political climate, it's become difficult to find shows willing to discuss, much less listen to, different points of view. Our job is to talk about things we hope you'll find interesting without all the shouting. To disagree without being disagreeable. To provide incisive factual commentary that cuts through the weekly spin cycle and aims to enlighten, not enrage, our listeners. So tune in for Civil Politics, Friday evenings at 7, here on Valley Free Radio, or anytime at civilpoliticsradio.com. And we are back. You are still listening to evidence-based radio. So, as noted, I do want to talk about a cool use for a neural network. This is one that can help humans learn more about how our brains work rather than trying to create a brain that is supposed to be a simulacrum of a person and uh so <laughs> another sort of anecdote i was talking to my partner about the turing test which is a test to see if an ai can fool someone into believing it's an actual human being and uh they she said well of course they they have computers that pass the turing test all the time and i was like yes but and she said yes but The way that they do it is by having the computer impersonate a young child, um, which to me says a lot. Um, it's like, yes, if you absolutely, uh, mimic a person who is not fully developed and doesn't actually have a strong grasp of language, um, and is able to, uh, be given the benefit of the doubt for language, then yes. Um, I think they said, I think she said that they also um, had bots that had pretended to be um, people for whom English was a second language. So again, yes. (laughs) Um, But is that a true test of um, the ability for an AI to mimic a fully, um Fledged English as a first speaker or uh, as a first language speaker, um, human being, probably not so much, but again, we can use them in really cool ways, and so a study in science advances by Katharina Dobbs and colleagues from MIT and Columbia University looked at specialization in the brain using convolutional neural networks. They wanted to test the hypothesis that the reason for specialization in regions of the cortex, such as that for recognizing faces and understanding language, are distinct because this allows for computational optimization for broader applications of using facial recognition. It actually used to be quite a controversial Uh, It used to be quite controversial to suggest that the brain had specific regions responsible for specific tasks, but today we know that there are many quote-unquote centers in the brain that are responsible for specific human functions, and which, if damaged, can lead to permanent impairment of function. Though, because our brain is pretty spiffy, it can also sometimes rewire other bits of the brain to take on that specialization. Now, there are several hypotheses for this specialization, including evolutionary selection pressure, which allows for easy addition of modules and problem solving. So basically, if you have a bunch of different places in the brain that do different things, it's easier to tack another one on um, that can do something new. Another suggests that functional specialization corresponds to mental selective modulation. Basically, doing specific tasks became the purview of certain areas of the brain via repetition of function in the body rather than the mind. A third is that you need specialist areas rather than areas that have general utility, a sort of jack of all trades, but master of none, uh, which is what Dobbs et al. tested in their work. Um, So basically, if you just have a jack-of-all-trades, it can't do the kind of really fine specialization that our brains are able to do. So the team took two VGG-16 neural networks, one with facial recognition, recognition training and the other generic object training. They found that each worked well for their given task, but poorly for the opposite task. In order to test if this was just a function of the initial specialization, the team then trained a third network on both facial recognition and object categorization. They then found that this network performed well at both tasks. To tease out whether this meant that their hypothesis was wrong and that a jack-of-all-trades can do it, they performed a series of experiments to see if the network had spontaneously developed specialization, even though this had not been a programmed request. And so they found that the program actually had spontaneously segregated the network into subsystems for facial recognition and object recognition. They then sought to see if the segregation began early in the process or later. So the way that these networks work is that they scan an image several times over, going deeper and deeper along a path to discern features. The researchers found that the specialization did not become very apparent until the middle layers of the path, with the end layers being the most segregated. This finding mimics the process in the primate brain, which begins with an early processing stage in the retina, followed off followed by branching off to a category-specific pathway, such as facial features or body, and then further refining in the visual cortex. The data shows that this was actually an emergent property of the network rather than data bias, because the segregation did not begin until the middle steps of the layering. And while this mirrored in some respects the primate mind, it did not completely mimic our brain's processes, But it did show that segregation can arise from the act of solving multiple tasks. So that's really cool. Um, Basically, it turns out that if you give something that's supposed to work like a human brain, a task like this, it will do basically what the human brain does, which is that it will create segmented areas that are responsible for the different kinds of visualization, so, yeah, very cool. Um, and I liked that they were able to really get into the meat of it, so to speak. Um, and to be able to trace all of that, um, all of the decision making trees that the neural network went through. Um, so yeah, I thought that was a extremely neat, uh, article, um, or study, I should say. So, yeah. Okay. So let's uh, switch gears and uh, we're going to talk about nutrition for a moment. And so, yeah, I don't often do this um, because, well, for a myriad of reasons, but a lot of times the studies are contradictory or they have confounding effects that make it hard to tease out real data. Um, I'm sure you've all heard the uh, trope about you know on monday eggs are good for you on tuesday they're bad for you on wednesday they're good for you mm-hmm. on thursday um you know <laughs> you can only eat egg whites um that sort of a thing um but i thought that this study was really interesting and important um it deals more with um sort of the social implications of diet and so it's a study on the increased levels of colorectal cancer among um African-Americans in the U.S. And so University of Illinois researchers looked at the combination of bile acids, gut microbes, racial identity, and neighborhood food environments. Our review leverages important foundational research to investigate microbial mechanisms of cancer health disparities related to barriers in the food environment said Patricia Wolfe, postdoctoral researcher in the Department of Animal Sciences and the Cancer Education and Career Development Program at U of I, and first author of the paper published in M Systems. Bile acids in the gut help with digestion of fats, cholesterols, and some vitamins. Microbes in the gut metabolize these acids into new versions called secondary bile acids. Some of these are neutral or may even be beneficial, but some can cause inflammation of DNA, uh, cause inflammation or DNA damage, which can lead to cancer. Now, researchers still aren't 100% sure of how the balance can tip towards cancer, but a big indicator is consuming what is called a quote unquote Western style diet, high in fat, things like that. But the majority of Americans eat this way, so why, then, are African Americans so vulnerable? Wolfe and her team believes the issue is tied to food deserts. On average, Black African American individuals live more than a mile further from full-service supermarkets than non-Hispanic white individuals. People living in these food deserts have no choice but to shop at either convenience outlets or bodegas. This impacts dietary intake, fewer whole foods, less fiber and calcium, and likely changes the gut environment, Wolf says. Now, this isn't the first time that food deserts have been implicated in higher risk of cancer, but this analysis connects the diet of those living there with specific gut processes. They note that foods rich in taurine and cysteine, which are amino acids common in meat products, promote the production of those damaging secondary bile acids as well as hydrogen sulfide. And so this can then lead to disruption of cellular membranes, inflammation, and again damage to DNA. Diets rich in saturated fats and polyunsaturated fats, such as corn and safflower oil, lead to an overall increase in bile acids, both the neutral ones and especially the bad ones. But again, say it with me now, cause or can cause inflammation and eventually cancer. Now, the same compounds are produced by the overconsumption of alcohol. And they note that food desert areas are often filled uh, with fast food restaurants and, well, liquor stores. And to add sort of insult to injury, healthy foods such as those containing fiber and calcium actually decrease the bioavailability of secondary bile acids and thus offer a layer of protection. So those with a healthier diet are adding protection while not necessarily creating more damage, which is kind of a two-fold increase in protection. There is overwhelming evidence those most susceptible to colorectal cancer disparities have inequitable access to high-quality food driven by racist housing policies and predatory marketing strategies. If associations are observed between bile acid composition and the neighborhood food environment, This could lead to the expansion of national programs that reduce barriers to bile acid mitigating nutrients or policies aiming to reduce fast food and convenience store saturation in low socioeconomic status neighborhoods, Wolfe said. And so in addition to the dietary issues that can contribute to cancer, they also found evidence that circadian rhythm disturbances can also affect bile acid metabolism and other microbial processes as well. Many people who live in food deserts also have shift work and long commutes, and thus may suffer from sleep disruptions caused by these factors. Wolf is a member of the Microbes and Social Equity Working Group, founded in 2019 by Suzanne Ishak, Assistant Professor of Animal and Veterinary Sciences at the University of Maine. Wolf points to the importance of the work for teasing out the true causes of disparity without blaming the victims. She hopes their work will continue to develop connections that can be actioned on in the future to help reduce the amount of colorectal cancer overall, but especially among those in food deserts. Which would be amazing because food deserts are a real issue. Um, and it's something we know about and don't do anything about because, you know, we, um, <laughs> anyways, we're not going to get into that because that that is just a rabbit hole rant that uh, we don't want to get into tonight because we still have other things to talk about. So um, you may have noticed that I have been comparing the relaxation of COVID restrictions to antibiotic resistance for the last few weeks. Well, a new study found something interesting about antibiotic resistance in two populations of children with different dose regimens. Melinda Pettigrew, PhD at the Yale School of Public Health and her colleagues studied children who had been diagnosed with CAP, or community-acquired pneumonia. The children were treated with beta-lactam antibiotics. Now, this is a large group of antibiotics that can that includes most of the ones you've probably heard of, uh, penicillins, cephalosporins, um, carbapenems, and other ones as well. The goal of work on of, on antibiotics is to find the ideal balance between reducing the use of antibiotics and, of course, maintaining the patient's health. The team looked at data from a randomized control, NIH-funded trial called the scout Cap. This initial study found that a five-day course of beta-lactam antibiotics was as effective as a 10-day course. Pettigrew was in charge of the microbiome sub-study of the SCOUT-CAP trial. And so this sub-study looked at how the two time periods influenced antibiotic-resistant genes and respiratory microbiota. The team used a technique called shock shotgun metagenomic sequencing on DNA from throat swabs and stool samples collected first at a few days post-diagnosis and then at the conclusion of the trial a few weeks later. Shotgun metagenomic sequencing, by the way, is a relatively new version of genetic sequencing that involves sequencing the DNA of all organisms in a sample. The DNA is then sliced into smaller fragments which are individually sequenced. The slices are then reassembled using shared sequences to create a larger DNA strand of each organism. It can also give information about the relative abundance of the different organisms in the sample. And so Pettigrew and her colleagues found that there were fewer resistance genes in children who had taken a five-day course of antibiotics they found that while some of these genes were associated with resistance to beta-lactam in both groups, in the longer duration group, they also found a significant increase in resistance genes for other antibiotics. You can have increases in resistance to drugs other than the ones you're treating with. She said, there are all these off-target effects, which is, you know, pretty disquieting. Um, And so this is one of the really big, huge issues with uh, antibiotic resistance is that it is, uh, you know, basically people keep talking about how we have to have these big projects to understand the brain and understand uh, the genome and things like that, which are all great. But, um, you know, there's still so much we don't understand about our microbiota and about how antibiotics interact with our microbiota, which is why, you know, studies like this are great, but, you know, they're still just being done now um, because we didn't really understand the uh, importance of our microbiota for a much longer period of time uh, than maybe we should have done. And so they also discovered changes to the microbiome's commensal bacteria were different in the two durations. So antibiotics don't just impact the pathogens that we're trying to treat, Pettigrew said, they can affect the microbiota as a whole. Now, this study tracked the children for 30 days. In future, Pettigrew would like to see trials with longer durations to see just how much of a risk there is for disruption to the microbe. Microbiome. She'd also like to see a longer tracking of study participants in order to see if these changes are long term or quickly revert to the mean. We don't know if the resistome, the collection of resistant genes and bacteria, and the microbiome will eventually return to normal. These kinds of studies could help researchers harness the microbiome to identify patients most at risk of antibiotic resistance. If future investigations support these findings, these techniques. Could someday aid the FDA in determining drug safety profiles and establishing optimal treatment durations. The microbiome is so important for health, and disruption can lead to other downstream effects, including antibiotic resistance, she noted. Which is, of course, a very big deal, and something that I have spent a lot of time Worrying about and thinking about more, I think, than some scientists some days. Um, no, it's not true. Um, you know, microbiologists are definitely, um, interested in antibiotic resistance. Um, especially medical, uh, microbiologists. Uh, obviously they spend all their days worrying about it, I'm sure. Um, and wondering why, you know, people aren't thinking about it more. Um, more at the forefront of their, uh, their brains. Um, you know, I think of hearkening back to earlier, I think of all of the, um, ridiculous amount of money being traded back and forth on the blockchain and how that money could be used to, you know, for instance, uh, fund research into antibiotic resistance. Ah, <sighs> but yeah. Anywho, Uh, Let's finish up tonight by talking about uh, Greenland and the exodus of the Vikings from their settlement there. So uh, Norsemen settled in southern Greenland in around 985, but by the early 1400s, they had abandoned the island. Now, researchers have hypothesized that the issue came to a head when the Little Ice Age hit and temperatures plummeted, making the sparse island unlivable. However, new research by a team led by the Department of Geosciences at the University of Massachusetts Amherst have found that the key to the Norse abandoning the island was drought, not cold. Now, the Norse called Greenland the Eastern Settlement, which is weird to me since it's west, but um, anyway... (laughs) Um, Maybe they were uh, thinking of Vinland, but that was a very short-lived settlement. Anywho, uh, initially they prospered by clearing the land of shrubs and planting grass to graze their animals. At its height, the settlement boasted around 2,000 inhabitants, but again, by the early 1400s, it was functionally abandoned. Raymond Bradley, University Distinguished Professor of Geosciences at UMass Amherst, notes that, before this study, there was no data from the actual site of the Viking settlements, and that's a problem. It turns out that the ice cores used in previous studies had come from a site that was over 600 miles away and over a mile higher in elevation. Whew, that is um, something. <laughs> uh, not quite sure what, but, but something um, you know, that kind of difference makes a well difference. When Bradley and his team actually went to Greenland and began taking cores at Lake 578, adjacent to a Norse farm and close to a larger settlement, they found a different story. The team studied and took samples at the site for three years. Nobody had actually studied this location before, said Bo Yang Zhao, the study's lead author who conducted this research for his PhD in geosciences at UMass Amherst and is now a postdoctoral research associate at Brown. The team harvested cores that represented 2,000 years' worth of climate data, which the team examined for two different markers. The first is a lipid produced by bacteria known as B.R., GDGT, which can give you temperature readings. If you have a complete enough record, you can directly link the changing structures of the lipids to changing temperatures, said Ilsta Castaneda, professor of geosciences at UMass Amherst and another of the paper's co-authors. A second marker is derived from the waxy coating on plant leaves, which can indicate there was water, the plant indicate where the water the plant used was derived and can determine the rates at which grasses and other plants, crucial for the survival of the livestock, would have lost water due to evaporation, which is an indicator, obviously, of how dry the climate would have been. What we discovered, said Zhao, is that while the temperature barely changed over the course of the north settlement of southern Greenland, it became steadily drier over time. Life was already rough when they began their settlement, and overwintered livestock often had to be carried to the fields in spring due to their poor diet in winter. The loss of fodder for winter storage would have been a large blow to the settlements. Archaeological evidence showed, in fact, that as they lost arable land, they had to turn to the sea for sustenance, which would have been a more dangerous and uncertain food source and in fact a drought much more recently hit greenland with a 50% reduction in hay and silage in 2008 and so you know those people were at, were able to simply um you know get hay imported but it wasn't exactly that easy when it comes to uh the you know thousands or 1100s or 1200s Um, they were a lot farther away than you would think and so other factors were certainly at play but drought would have been a substantial reason to abandon the island and return to literally greener pastures uh, closer to Scandinavia. Okay that is all the time we have for tonight Uh, Thank you for listening to Evidence-Based Radio. Evidence-Based Radio is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is Widgen by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy.